one, three, initiating broadcast of fascinating nouns in three, two, one. Hello everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So every year, you know, I got to have a holiday episode and... This one is no different. We are going to talk to Michael Crondall, uh, who is a food historian and artist as well. Uh, we're going to talk about holiday traditions, especially as it comes to desserts. So we're going to talk about the gingerbread man, the Christmas cookie. Uh, we're probably going to hit Hanukkah and maybe a little bit of Thanksgiving. So we're going to talk about holiday desserts, how we got them, how they evolved, and where they stand now and why they're so delicious. So let's get into this. Michael. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Let's uh, let's rock and roll here. Well, Michael, I got to ask you, the first question I have to ask you uh, is it, it's Crondall? Am I pronouncing it's that Crondall. correctly? It's Crondall. Yeah, Crondall. Now that I love that name, by the way, because that sounds like a Christmas dessert. Um, yeah, you know, we're gonna get into some Christmas desserts. Do you have anything in your family, any particular dish that's named after you? Do you have a namesake in, in the culinary world? I, I do world? not, but a Crondall mit Schlag sounds like a good thing. Um. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, so schlag which is schlag? what the Austrians. So the name is originally Austrian, and uh, schlag ah. is uh, whipped cream, which uh, the Austrians will put on <laughs> anything and everything. Although I probably right. should not share this with my wife. Yes, <laughs> Crondel with whipped cream. That's great. That's <laughs> that sounds delicious. Uh, that's funny. I mean, it's a great name. And so you're, you know, you're a you're a dessert master. You were um, a, a food connoisseur. Uh, you were a chef, I believe. A current culinary arts instructor. You do a lot of different things. Let's talk about your food bona fides first, uh, your bona fides before we get into the um, some of the other stuff I want to talk so, about. So you want to know if I'm legit, right? I want to know if you're legit, Michael. I'm trying to vet you here. <laughs> so, so I have a background um, of having gone to cooking school. So I went to cooking school, uh, left cooking school, and then worked for a while, actually for quite a while, in restaurants. But somewhere mm -hmm. in there, I also got an art degree. Mm -hmm. And so the day job was kind of cooking. And to be perfectly honest, cooking is pretty rote. It's a kind of a factory job. And so at a certain point, I got really interested in this idea of, OK, well, maybe I can write about food. And mm -hmm. I'd always been interested about food and history because what actually uh, – OK, I really do like eating dessert. But yes. This, so that's but. the secret. That's the secret. The official uh -huh. version, however, is that I'm – really interested in food and history and okay. particularly the social history of food and why dessert is interesting, which mm -hmm. is of course when, when I went to Vienna to do research, I had to eat six in a row. Why dessert is interesting <laughs> is because it is unnecessary. It's inconsequential. Yeah. Oh, and so I've written about spices. I've written a lot about sweet foods over the last few years because they tell you about what a society kind of values, mm -hmm. what a society, how it's made up in terms of its social structures. It tells you a lot about a person's culture, right? Mm -hmm. In a way that potatoes don't particularly. 
or rice doesn't because we need that stuff, right? We need sure. potatoes, we need rice. We don't really need our uh, brownies. <laughs> well, I mean, I spent I did a, a research uh, a study abroad in Ireland. And they might say the the potato thing might, uh, you know, those might be fighting words because the potato was an extraordinarily nutrient dense food, you know, way back when before we, you know, genetically modified all the the, um, good stuff out. So, you know, requirements, I think, can kind of change, not only with, as you mentioned, culturally, but also um, as we use food in the modern age, as we uh, change, fundamentally change food, some of those things, I think, can be adjusted a little bit. I think that's true, but... The importance of the potato to the Irish and to other mm-hmm. communities that have depended on it was it was sustenance. You don't right. have potatoes, you die. Right. Fair enough. You don't have a soccer tort. You're OK. <laughs> so why do you need it? Right. I mean, I can tell yeah, you very yeah. easily why they need the potatoes. And I know it can tell you why it's important to the culture, because if you don't have it, you die. Right. But right. Right. If you. Or think about chili peppers. Nobody needs chili peppers to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody needs, you know, an apple strudel to survive. Nobody needs a chocolate chip cookie. Well, some of us do. But most right. of us don't need them to survive. <laughs> right. Well, I work very closely uh, on another podcast that I do. You'll find a lot of shameless plugs for myself and for your things. Um, Dr. Michael Denon, he, he is driven. He is fueled by chocolate chip cookies. So he might have some words with you there on those in particular. But I understand what you're saying. Uh, I mean, it's interesting to think about dessert because, um, you know, I, I want to get how you define it. But before we get too long on this food path, I'm afraid I got to take a little detour here because, you know, you wrote the book Sweet Invention, A History of Dessert, which we're going to talk about. It's our holiday episode. We're going to get into specifically Christmas or holiday, Hanukkah, uh, even some festivist, uh, some festivist dishes here. But you mentioned art school. You kind of glossed over it. But you're quite an established artist. I mean, you've been doing, you know, exhibits and exhibitions and galleries since, you know, the 80s or whatever. I mean, this, you've been doing this a very long time. This, in some ways, you live two parallel lives here, Michael. So I would be remiss if we didn't at least mention your artwork. And hopefully there's some crossover between food and art. You know, are you a gingerbread house master? Do you create, ex- you know, exorbitant architecture out of cake? You know, what are we doing here? The interesting thing about that is that uh, – so I went to art school. I did years and years of art history. Mm-hmm. And when you actually talk about sweet foods, they often very closely relate to movements that are going on in the art world at the time. So that if okay. you look at yeah. desserts in the Renaissance, they kind of connect to Renaissance, let's say, sculpture painting. If you look at the same in Victorian England, they're making these things out of sugar – that kind of looks like a cuckoo clock or some sort of ornate Victorian. Yeah. I always think of the Albert Memorial in um, in London, which is this mm. huge ornate, kind of ugly, monument to Prince Albert. And you yeah. look at the cookbooks and they're doing the same thing. So there is yeah. that connection. So yeah. my art history background was actually super, super useful in understanding a dessert. To the point that, particularly in the Renaissance in Italy and a little bit later into the early Baroque, you would actually have the same artists making sugar sculptures as hmm. were making bronze sculptures. So wow. 
Bernini, the guy who made, uh, you know, who built part of St. Peter's, the guy who built the famous Trevi or designed, I guess, the famous Trevi Fountain. There are actually drawings that he made. He was apparently best buds with the Queen of Sweden. That's a long wow. story. Sure. Anyways, best buds <laughs> probably a fun the, one, but yeah, <laughs> best buds with the Queen of Sweden, and he was designing all of these sugar sculptures for her mm. table. So okay. this is like the most important artist of the seventeenth century, if I got my dates right. Mm-hmm. The most important sculptor of the seventeenth century is making sugar sculptures. Wow. So okay, there is an intimate connection, and the explanation for that is. Kind of, if you were Renaissance slash Baroque artist, you did stuff for hire, right? Yep. So, oh, we need, you know, a giant sculpture to go in the middle of our piazza. You do it. Oh, I need a sort of a small scale sugar sculpture for my dinner party. You do it. (laughs) Right. They're all freelancers. They were all work for hire. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) So that's that's kind of of one story of the connection. The other side of the story is, and it actually took me a long time to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So both food and art are physical objects, right? They're things. Mm-hmm. They're not like music. They're not like literature. They're things. You can pick them up. You can look at them. You can turn them around. And you can right. consume them in a sense, you know, the one literally, right, and the other one more mm-hmm. visually. Sure. And what interests me about the food, I mean, I like eating it, but I actually like talking about it. Almost more mm-hmm. than I like eating it or eating okay. it, let's say. Okay. Whereas the art, I like making it. So it's kind of like over here, I'm the maker and over here, I'm the critic. And the two together somehow mm-hmm. fulfill two weird needs that I have. Two deep, dark holes in your soul? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I like that that comparison. It's interesting because the word consume is – it's kind of funny when it's used there, right? Like food, you do eat, and then it goes away. Art, you don't really, when you consume it, you just take it in and process it. It still exists in the world, so someone else can eat it. But, it, you know, if you're eating a, a gigantic, you know, cake or, or a sugar sculpture, once you eat that part, you can't give it to anybody else, which is amazing because I was just watching, uh, I mean, this is a, a perfect analogy here. You're going to love this. I was just watching a Simpsons episode and for their couch gag in the beginning, they had someone cut up a bunch of food. It was a, it was a Thanksgiving episode and then create like, you know, Simpsons characters sitting on a couch made out of food and then they pour gravy on it and that's the end of the, you know, that's the gag or whatever. But I was thinking to myself, oh my God, someone just spent hours building that And then in a second, it's gone, and then you never see it again. So in some ways, food is, food art is very ephemeral. Or, you know, look at ice sculptures as well, right? You may not eat the ice, but it melts and it goes away. I mean, it's kind of sad in a way that that doesn't live on. The food sculpture, the food art part of it doesn't live on. It exists for a very specific moment in time. And in some ways, that's even more poetic, wouldn't you agree? It is poetic, but it also... um When it comes to visual art, sculpture, painting, whatever, Uh the analogy between food is, of course, inadequate or um, only partial because in some ways Uh food is also like performance. So a meal, if you Uh stop to think about it, is a performance. There is a Uh presenter. There is a director. There is an audience. Uh And there is this thing that exists for a 
certain period of time and then disappears. I always like to compare Broadway plays to fancy restaurants in New York City because in both cases, there are sets. In both cases, there are, in essence, servers. There is a product. They cost about the same. It's going to cost you. (laughs) (laughs) They take about two hours. Sure. And... At the end of it, you have a very similar kind of product, for lack of a better term. Experience? Experience, maybe a better term. That's the product, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, I do think that there is – I mean, it's certainly true that historically Mm. the French have always thought of cooking, but particularly pastry making, as an art, as an applied art, kind of like fashion, right? Yeah. Yes. Or – jewelry making or something like that something you need a lot of training for something that goes in and out of fashion relatively quickly and something that is historically was something that only the very very wealthy could afford actually i mean almost like a trade yeah i mean well except that a trade more like uh armani than you're a local plumber (laughs) <laughs> right, yeah, 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 right, right, right. There wasn't like a union, I guess, but yeah, no, right. There but was I was thinking a something. Actually, there was a union that that we can go of artists. No, uh, not, no, not for artists, for pastry makers. <laughs> we may go there. That, that I like that. Well, I want to get to um, I want to get to dessert because how you define dessert is interesting. But I got one more question. Uh, before we go into that, you know, you do you have a large collection of antique cookbooks? I mean, you quote them a lot. I mean, cookbooks, in a lot of ways, you've referenced them already as being uh, you know, kind of the the moment where what's going on in the zeitgeist as it relates to food is kind of captured in literary form in these cookbooks. I mean, it tells you what was going on either artistically or what was available and people were doing what were, you know, uh, do you, do you have like a large collection? I don't, and I imagine I don't. you've and read a bunch. The reason I don't is partially, I don't have the money Yeah, because these things are often expensive. I don't have the space because I live in New York city. Yeah. But the, perhaps the most important thing is that these are all have historically been available in libraries uh, right. So they have these, you know, um, collections of 16th, 17th century cookbooks. And that's how, how I started was going into physical libraries and digging these things up. Mm-hmm. However, over the last 10 years or so, so much of this has been digitized. Right. And I recently did a project where I was trying to prove that something to do with chili peppers, because that's my other interest in food is spices and <laughs> yeah right actually wrote a whole get, book on it i wrote yeah. a book on it and it, yeah. it actually connects with christmas a lot in terms of the sweets yeah. right but i was trying to prove something about spices in europe they were introduced relatively early mm-hmm. and so i managed to basically pull up pretty much all of the spice books that were written in the 16th century wow okay uh with copies from here and there and there and, you know, this particular version, this particular version, this particular version, mostly to learn that everybody was just ripping everybody else off. Right. <laughs> Not the changes. Right. <laughs> so there sure, were essentially right. like three texts and like by the end of the century, everybody had just quoted everybody else, the three texts and had quoted the people yeah. quoting everybody else. So sounds like the Internet. Sounds like sounds like the analog so Internet. Much. Yeah. It was so much like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. I mean, that's interesting when you think about it. I mean, in some ways, that raises the question whether people were actually cooking like that or they were just thinking that's how everyone was cooking because they copied the first guy who was – there's only one guy cooking like that and they all just copied and pasted. I think that's the other thing about cookbooks is like if you go to your Barnes & Noble today and look at the cookbooks, how many people Mm -hmm. are actually cooking that stuff? Right. Right. Yeah, right. That's a good same that's thing. Eight yeah. hundred, three hundred yeah, yeah. years ago. That's it. I mean, yeah, I, I imagine they didn't have like celebrity chefs back then, but I'm, you know, they might have. I mean, you know, you still had people who were royal working for the royals or whatever. But were they writing cookbooks? It's an interesting question uh, that I don't know. But I imagine all of them, or at least through this cookbook research, you figured out when dessert happened, right? Like, I want to get to dessert here because I have a sweet tooth, Michael. And I would be remiss if we didn't we didn't get to it um, because I got to know, why do I like dessert? Where did it come from? Was it always sweet? I got a lot of questions here. So start. Tell me, how do you how do you define it first um, for you, for the structure of your books and for so our conversation? This is the difficulty of what people call what they call. In other words, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if that makes any sense, sort of, sort of. Yeah. So. What we call dessert is a very specific kind of uh, direction, very uh, specific origin, which is dessert comes from the French word dessert, which comes from the word for desservir, which comes Mm -hmm. from the fact that in the Middle Ages, they would have a bunch of stuff on the table. They would remove it or unserve it. Mm. Deservir. Deserve, right. Deserve it. And then they would put something on the table. Right. Something else on the table. So that was the thing that they put on the table after they'd taken all the other stuff off. (laughs) Okay. The problem with that is that it kind of at that point meant something different. It probably meant a bunch of dried fruit, maybe even fruit Mm -hmm. fruit and possibly Mm -hmm. some cheese. It didn't really mean what we would think of as dessert. Okay. So fast forward sometime into the kind of the court of Louis the 14th, 17th century. And now the French are serving everything buffet style. So you mm-hmm. get this giant, think of a, a cruise ship or something or a hotel. <laughs> All right. So they're yeah. serving everything. I'm thinking Vegas. Ve- Vegas works too, right? Vegas, Vegas is gigantic. Perfect. Yeah, okay. All right. All right. So they put everything on a giant table. I mean, people mm-hmm. can afford this stuff, right? Everybody else mm-hmm. is being gruel. Mm-hmm. But right. um, the people who can afford something better than gruel. Uh-huh. We'll put the roast boar and the roast pheasants and the pies, the fish pies and what have you on the table all at once. And there'll be enormous amounts of food because that's how you show off your rich. And in the middle of it, there'll be little sweet things like creme brulee or other kinds of custards or little apple tarts or little donuts or something like that. Sure. And then they would take that away. They'd bring on another big old course. That would be the second course. And there'd be a few more of these sweet things interspersed. The term hors d'oeuvre, you know, or mm-hmm. like an appetizer. Yeah. Were these little dishes because they were outside of the oeuvre or the work. Okay. All right. Anyway. Makes sense. And then at some point they figure out, okay, two giant courses is not sufficient. We'll go with a third giant course. And this third giant course was all sweets. So it was pastries, it was candy, it was uh, cookies, you name it. They would pile this stuff in giant pyramids. And this sort of is what we think of as dessert, this final course, except 
that they're not calling that dessert. They're just calling that the third course. Okay. Fast forward another 200 years. It's taken humans a while. This this is a this is an oh, evolution, yeah. Yeah, a process. Is like, this is evolution. This is the evolution yeah. of dessert. Yeah. What is it that we sort of started on all fours and then now we eventually <laughs> get to the point where right. we get um, a Charlotte Russe. Right. right. So you get into the 18th century and this whole thing of serving you know, buffet style doesn't really make sense because this made lots of sense in aristocratic households because, you know, you're the Prince of Condé and you invite everybody for dinner mm -hmm. and you have lots of food, servants, 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 lots of food, servants, 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 lots of food. In all these cooks and chefs and pastry chefs and dessert chefs that have been working for the aristocrats, of course, all lost their jobs in France. Because there right. was something called the French Revolution. <laughs> right, yeah. A lot of people out of work. A lot of people off, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, lot, a lot going on there, yeah. Yeah, a lot going on there. Yeah. But the aristocrats either escape to England or they lose their heads, literally. <laughs> right. And now you got all these unemployed chefs mm -hmm. and pastry cooks and candy makers. And so they set up shop. And mm -hmm. this is actually where the restaurant as we know it originates because mm. got all these guys out of work and it is guys, right? These right. guys out of work. And so they open up little places to go and eat. And of course now you're sitting down at a restaurant, a giant buffet isn't going to work. Right. They, they hadn't gotten to the Vegas bit yet in Paris. <laughs> right. America's, America's changed that a little bit, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, back then. Yeah. America always sort of reverts a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So now, now they're just serving instead of serving buffet style, which they used to call service a la Francaise or the French style. Mm -hmm. They now go to the Russian style of service, which now they call service a la Russe. And this is like one meal, you know, one dish after another, after another, after another. So you sit down at the restaurant and I'm like, I'd like one of those, and I like one of those, and so on. Mm -hmm. And now finally we get to what we think of as a meal that begins with something savory, you know, an appetizer, then there's a main course, and there's usually France, so it's a whole bunch of main courses, right? Mm -hmm. And that eventually you get to this final course or courses that are called dessert or dessert. Got it. So it takes kind of from the Middle Ages when it's a bunch of nuts yeah, and maybe some candied fruit <laughs> to the 19th century where it becomes an actual course unto itself, mm. right? So that's like right. dessert, which is something that refers to a course in a meal. Got it. And it becomes French pastry finally. I mean, that's, then somewhere that's there, what we want. Pastry too. But here's the thing that's a problem for me always. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's call it a semiotic problem. Okay. All right. Because we eat sweet foods all different times of day, right? We, there's lots mm -hmm. of food that we eat for dessert. And then there's food that we eat that are sweet that we don't think of as dessert. You know, breakfast cereal. Americans typically do not eat <laughs> breakfast cereal at the end of a meal. Right. But there's well, more yeah, sugar in it than there yeah. is in that piece of pie. I mean, there's a cereal called Cookie Crisp. So, right. <laughs> I mean, or, you know, something like that. Or, yeah. you know, kids come home and eat their Oreos with their milk. It's not <laughs> right. like a dessert course or mm. a donut for breakfast. I, right. You know right. what I mean? Waffles. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Waffles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, there's tons of sweet foods that we eat. 
that aren't technically dessert and that's why I sometimes kind of like say sweet foods and dessert because it's a little hard time. I have a hard time putting them fully and thoroughly into their particular slots. Right. Well, one is like a course. One is something you have after a meal and other things are things you eat. You can eat sweet things without it being part of your meal. I mean, nowadays, right? I mean, because a lot of what you do is the history of food and, you know, the way we eat now is very different than the way we ate before. And it's also interesting at this point, you know, I I did a whole episode on how the military um, has affected the way Americans eat food. And, you know, you're talking about a lot of the sugary and foods that we have now, a lot of that was used as preservatives. So a lot of the food we eat now during the day has a lot of sugar, salt in it, which is directly related to the military history. So in a lot of ways, we eat more sugary foods now than in any point in history. So I'm guessing if, you know, the ancient Romans were here, everything, we would only be eating dessert to them, really, um, if you were to qualify it as a food and not as a course of a meal. Right, except the dessert is invariably sweet as right. of, you know, whenever. Right. So we do we do elide the idea of sweetness and dessert, but mm-hmm. so desserts cover, dessert covers part of it, right? But not all. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Well, I mean, it's interesting because as I was reading this, you know, I think you talk a lot about sugar like sugar becomes the key to this whole thing the availability of sugar because i think you mentioned in your book how before you know uh, before it was real before i mean before we started enslaving people and having them harvest sugar for us sugar was very difficult to get and extraordinarily expensive and so some of the early cookbooks that have as you start getting into you know what were the things that were made around holiday time the the ingredients were extraordinarily expensive you don't think about that so sweet things were very rare, if I'm understanding it correctly. They were very rare, and they were very much way a way of showing off. So right. that one like a grill, that, like you put, like you know, you have gold teeth, or you have yeah. you know a lot of chains. That's how you show it off. Now, back then, it was sweet food, right? Or or these days, you get a custom-made wedding cake that costs you $60,000. That is still a way of <laughs> <Right>. showing off. <laughs> right. I guess so. Do they have $60,000 wedding cakes? Oh, I'm not in that yes, bracket. they do. Do they? Okay. All right. Clearly, I'm not one of the elite. I'm not one of the 1%, obviously. That's that's nuts, Michael. Yeah. 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 No, I, that's I, a way to show I, it. I was trying to figure out at one point, one of the Hearsts got married a little while ago in, um, mm-hmm. I want to say in San Francisco, but so, somewhere sort of in that area, in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And I was trying like crazy to find out how much they paid for the wedding cake because the wedding cake was six feet plus high and covered with all <laughs> right. sorts of gold and you name it. And I yeah. just like that particular secret uh, eluded me, unfortunately. But I, if, if that was less than $50,000, I'd be surprised. That's amazing. Shows you what I know, Michael. Uh, Shows you what I know. Well, I want to figure out how, um, because one of the things that makes the holidays so great, you know, amongst all, not only cultures and religions, uh, is this idea of having very specific desserts for the holidays, you know, we, you know, there's, there's Christmas cookies, there's, you know, Hanukkah latkes, um, you know, there's the Festivus meal. These, these are kind of interesting. So I'm curious, how do we go, how do we go from establishing desserts to then kind of establishing traditional pieces? Before we get into specific stuff, I'm kind of curious how we get specific religious or cultural desserts for the holidays. 
I'm going to go back to a slightly to an, to an, an analogy that maybe doesn't connect so much to Christmas, but connects to Diwali in India. Okay. Partially because in India they had sweet foods way before anybody else did because they figured out how to cultivate sugar. So right. sugar was ubiquitous. However, sugar was also very much associated with dairy and dairy was holy. Because okay. in uh, in Hinduism, cows are holy. Everything they produce mm-hmm. is holy, whether it is, you know, you name it, the liquid that comes out of them, it's holy. M- milk or manure, it's holy right. stuff. Yeah. And so often it was actually priests who were making the sweets in India. So you okay. go to the temples and it is the priests who are making them. And if you go to make an offering to the god, you typically bring something sweet as an offering. And I had Mm. someone explain this to me in this kind of analogy, which is that God is sweet. By eating something sweet, you become as one with God. And I know that sounds a little bit weird, except when you think of the Catholic Mass. (laughs) I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you. This idea of ingesting something so that you become like something is very, very common. And yeah, I would even say the Catholic Mass is probably one step up. I mean, that's akin to cannibalism. Yes. Whereas, okay. you know, just having something sweet is just being, you know, it's more like magical thinking. Right. Um, you are not eating you know. the God as you do in a Catholic right. Mass. You are consuming right. um, a, uh, a quality that the God would have. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Very and different. You find Very different. this sort of analogy in consuming sweet foods in just about every culture. And specifically, mm-hmm. if we think about Christmas or more specifically St. Uh, Nicholas Day, which is coming up in a few days on the 6th of right. December. So the idea of eating gingerbread in medieval Europe becomes very much associated with this. So you would make gingerbread saints that you would then consume. And these mm-hmm. gingerbread saints were sweet. They often were scented with spices, like gingerbread is scented with spices. And the association there was that sugar is precious. It's coming from the East, which it was at the time. So are Mm -hmm. the spices. Everything, all of these things are being sold by an apothecary, a druggist, a Mm -hmm. pharmacist. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) It's kind of funny to think about, but yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, think about what sugar has been used for. Historically, it's been used to... Make the medicine go down to quote a thing. Right. <laughs> As Mary Poppins so wisely told us. That's right. So the idea here is that in consuming these sweet spices and consuming this sugar in shaped in the shape of a, a saint, Saint Nicholas, you mm-hmm. are actually somehow imbibing the flavors of paradise and therefore somehow you are coming closer to that. And this idea mm-hmm. of making things into shape that you eat, you know, we're pretty much left these days with gingerbread men. But right. there's a long tradition, particularly in Germany and other parts of Central Europe, of making things in the shape of X. So you mm-hmm. make it into shape of a heart and you give it to your sweetheart so that in, in consuming that heart, I mean, it's the, the symbolism not, is not exactly subtle, right? In <laughs> consuming right. that yeah. heart you are somehow yeah. becoming closer to the other person. 
there are roosters that have have been traditionally made, and roosters are a sign of virility. So, well, mm-hmm. you get the idea there. I get the idea. Yeah. And in parts of Italy, they'd have these what they refer to ex, as ex votos, which are things made in the shape of, for example, a couple. So a couple would eat it before their wedding. First, they would have mm-hmm. it blessed by the mm-hmm. priest, and then right. they would consume it. Um, they make these pieces of gingerbread in the shape of limbs so that you got a broken leg, you get mm-hmm. it blessed, you eat it. Mm-hmm. Boom. You're set. Boom. All done. Who needs, well, I was, you know, who needs healthcare, right? <laughs> right, right. What's a cast? You can just eat a, a cooked leg or a cooked uh, cookie. Uh, you, 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 I was reading this article about gingerbread men are, are particularly interesting to me, as is the gingerbread house. Uh, but I, I was I was reading this Time article, which I'll put up on the website, and I was reading about um, how the uh, the ancient Greece would make honey cakes, which were similar to gingerbread. Sure. And then I saw your name pop up, and I realized it was quoting you, while they were, which was kind of cool to see. So I know you're going to agree with this. Uh, but the, that the Roman men, we're going to go a little blue here, but this was kind of interesting and along the same lines, that Roman men would eat anatomically correct honey cakes before orgies to stimulate their sexual appetites, which is very Roman, by the way. That's extraordinarily Roman. Um, but also, it, it also is that connection between I'm eating something, I want to generate my appetite, and then I'm eating, you know, the uh, the various body parts that I want to be stimulated. Uh, there's a lot going on there. You know, there's a lot of trying to connect yourself with an act, with qualities that I think, you know, that's what you're kind of getting to, right? That's the essence sure. of Sure. I mean, you are literally, you are what you eat, right? And here it's right. quite literal. And right. I think that there's this kind of... <laughs> Virtue slash whatever you want to call eating anatomically correct body parts. Mm -hmm. That represents one thing, but also people will these days abstain for sugar, right? From sugar. And Mm -hmm. that is a way of virtue signaling. You know, I have discovered Mm -hmm. that sugar is terrible for me and therefore, no, 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 no. I won't eat that particular cupcake. Right. So right, that it makes flips in terms of that so that whereas consuming sugar for the wealthy was a sign of privilege at a certain mm-hmm. point because nobody else could afford it. Mm-hmm. By the time you get into the 19th century, sorry, I'm a historian, I have to go back a couple hundred years. By the it's time right. you get into the 19th century, sugar was cheap enough. And again, why was it cheap? Because we were exploiting human beings to grow the mm-hmm. stuff. Right. But it was cheap enough that in Europe, during the, during the French Revolution, we're getting back to the French Revolution. During the it's French the Revolution, women rioted in the streets. Literally, there's accounts of women rioting the street demanding cheap sugar mm-hmm. because they'd so gotten so used to having sugar in their co- morning coffee. So, <laughs> wow. Kind of, I mean, I'm sort of thinking of. <laughs> the millennials riding in the streets because they can't get their $5 cup of coffee now. But right, right. <laughs> that is so funny. I mean, it's uh, societies are so similar. When you go back and you really look at history, 
nothing changes. Human beings are fundamentally, we're the same selfish people who are entitled and get used to situations so quickly uh, that, you know, we turn on a dime and take down our governments because we didn't get the sugar that we wanted. The, che- yeah. the gas isn't cheap enough because we're used to gas. doesn't matter where we get it or how, it, you know, who's exploited. It's, it's interesting to think about. I mean, when you, even when you like come down to desserts. So it's like Americans run on gas and the French run yeah. on sugar and coffee. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's close, you know. Um, well, so I have a question about gingerbread men before we leave that because I was reading and I, some of these stories I don't know if they're apocryphal or not and hopefully you'll you'll set me straight if they are but the classic story is that the gingerbread men were kind of maybe it wasn't created by but definitely popularized by Queen Elizabeth I in the 16th century where she would kind of make cookie figures of her favorite people at court or dignitaries is that it sounds like the the, the tradition of the gingerbread cookie or and and cookie-shaped like things goes back way further than that. Was she more of the popularizer of it, or is this just a way to make it more recent uh, and make it English? I think it's A, to make it English, because mm-hmm. the area of the world that was really known for its gingerbread was Germany. Uh, Got it. And the Netherlands. But, you know, the Netherlands are hop, skip, and a jump over to England. And there mm-hmm. was a slightly different seasoning mixture put into the British one than there was into the... the uh, the German one because just a different national palate. Mm. Obviously, Queen Elizabeth I wasn't going into the kitchens to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Right, I mean, right, right, right. Let's be clear about that. Yeah, That's pretty straightforward. Yeah. However, did she have a sweet taste? Absolutely. She was notorious for having horrible teeth. And in fact, oh. British in general, and I think there is one portrait with her with all these blackened teeth out there. But anyway <laughs> – People would go to England, Europeans uh, from the continent would go to England, and they were just kind of like, how can they eat so much sugar? And this was before – this was before the transatlantic slave trade. So they mm. got into eating way too much sugar early on and kept doing it so that by 1900, particularly among the poor apparently in England – Women got as much as 50%, 50% of their calories from sugar wow. consumption. The men That's got a lot. But, yeah, just shockingly. <laughs> that is a lot. I mean, that, that is quite a bit, and especially at a time when it, when it was so rare. Uh, but you mentioned this national palette and the spices. This is something that's kind of unique to Christmas cookies. And I want to talk about this a little bit because, you know, uh, spice cookies as, have their root in medieval cooking, ginger, cinnamon, nutmeg. I mean, my mom would hoard, when I was a kid, would hoard jingles, which were, you know, anise spiced uh, cookies. They were delicious, but it's not like anything else you taste throughout the rest of the year, except with like spice drops. Spice drops have also are, are very spicy candy. But how did this come about? Was it again about, you know, showing off that you can get a hold of these spices or is it just something that that was kind of in vogue at the time. They were expensive. That, that okay. was it. So that people would, in fact, hoard sugar, hoard spices. They would spend the extra money for the holidays to make these uh, different kinds of spiced uh, sweets. Mm-hmm. That The spices were available year-round. Mm-hmm. But the idea of using them to season this special occasion is certainly um, specific to specific to the time. There is a possible other reason, which actually it just occurred to me, and I hadn't really kind of processed this before. 
But it's exclusive. Happened. This is an exclusive an information. Exclusive. I love it. Exclusive. But what happened was that in the Middle Ages, the people who ran the spice trade and actually later on the sugar trade, because they at one point controlled all the sugar in the Mediterranean, were the Venetians. Okay. Now, Venice today is an amusement park. It's always hard to imagine.